Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, everyone. Greg here from the Rumor Flies podcast. Our show comically addresses the origins, evolution, and veracity of your favorite rumors, myths, and misconceptions. We are three friends in New Orleans who love to run our mouths, Google everything, and learn new things. Our show revolves around one question. How do certain facts, true or otherwise, become so publicly ingrained and accepted? We work hard, research harder, and answer the questions that plague your soul every day. Did Coca-Cola ever have cocaine in it? Does Disney have secret subliminal, often lewd, images in their animated films? Can a pregnant woman's diet affect the gender of her future child? If you like comedy and learning, come check us out at rumorfliespodcast.com or look us up on virtually every podcasting platform. Thanks. Greetings, comrades, and uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. Here we are, talking about a listener suggestion, which this time is the organized crime in the Soviet Union. Which can mean only two things, either the Russian Mafia or the KGB. Sometimes GRU mixed in as well, but basically they're all interconnected, as you will see later in the show. Now the problem with this is that Russian Mafia is mostly known for their actions in the Western world. And actually so is the other intelligence agencies, because KGB here, yeah... They oppressed all of us, but GRU, Russian Mafia, mostly worked outside, at least until the Soviet Union collapsed. But I'll talk about what they did when it collapsed as well. But for this very reason, just to know what the Soviets did in America and what are the perspectives on these things here, I have welcomed two excellent gentlemen, two, my, two of my Dark Myths colleagues here on this show. I have, uh, I have Rob Clark of the Lone Gunman podcast, and Greg Tilton, the be- the best part of Rumor Flies show. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves here? Rob, you start first. Well, folks, my name is Rob Clark. I'm the host of the Lone Gunman podcast, and uh, thank you, Christoph, for inviting me on here. My Dark Miss brethren, first show with you guys, and uh, I'm excited to be here and talk about this Russian mafia business with you. Glad to have you here, man. So, Greg, how is it finally like to not be the fact checker? <laughs> So yes, it's nice to not be uh, fact-checking for once. This um, I'm basically uh, here representing Rumor Flies. Hi, Ryan and Josh. Uh, suck it. So <laughs> Ryan's hard at work editing, and Josh is uh, I don't know. He's he's got strange hours, but yeah, happy to be here. 
Okay, so before we start about all of this, uh, what exactly are your basic perceptions here? Because I haven't watched a lot of American movies about all of this. I I watched some in preparation of this episode, and one that struck me was one where I don't remember the name, but I just remember this image of a guy being interviewed. To, I even partake in the Russian mafia with all of these tattoos on on his torso, and I laughed so hard about that one. And I'll get to, I'll get to the important importance of tattoos in Russian prison system as well. But but yeah, what's what's the most common common thing where you get to know Russian mafia from in the United States? Great tracksuits. Um, you guys over in Russia, the Russian mafia have great tracksuits. Just kidding. Movie wise, and I want to say uh, Eastern Promises. Of course, that might not even mm. be about the Russian mafia. I, I can't remember. It's been so long since I've seen it. Um, but it seems to me like that was, uh, you know, something about that business. Um, you know, and, and a lot of these cheesy action movies we have over here have, a, a, of course, a lot of the bad Russian mafia guys in it. And, they, you know, they're portrayed with the typical stereotypes, you know, big, tough guys and tattoos. And like I said, those great, are not stereotypes, comrade. <laughs> great tracksuits, you know. About the tracksuits, by the way, I have to respond to this uh, ASAP because. The tracksuits actually come from the Olympics of 1980. I mentioned that on that episode at that point, but I have to I have to mention this again because you see, when well, the Olympics that happened in Moscow, Adidas were contracted to make the tracksuits for the Olympic team. Now they had to remove a bunch of stuff from the tracksuits, but essentially for a while, Adidas clothing became available in Soviet Union, and that clothing was vastly better than anything else that we got there. Basically, the Adidas tracksuits were better than the custom-made soon suits of, of common people. So, where and they were extremely expensive and very, very rare and could only be obtained through the black market. So, it became a thing of status to wear these Adidas tracksuits. And even more, like when your tracksuit got worn out, you would cut out this Adidas sign from it and just stitch it onto some other piece of clothing. The Adidas brand and the three stripes is what really mattered. And and so it kind of caught on, because a lot of uh, post-Soviet and Soviet culture were born in the prison system. And this also ties into organized crime, because th- these were the guys doing the smuggling. So the tracksuit's the very, very authentic thing is there, because, one, it's comfortable. And by the way, tracksuits are all are often worn in uh, these top circles of Russian organized crime, together with, uh, like, these very fancy shoes, like real cool leather shoes, which you would wear only with a suit. That goes with the tracksuit together with the cap. Uh, that's that's one of the most iconic sites there. And this is why tracksuit is important, because that symbolizes the status, because these people grew up with these tracksuits being very expensive and very, very important to them, as they came from these Olympics. Another important thing which you might not know, which will come up later, is the famous Slav squatting, which is known on the... It's not a joke, really, because you know, you know the typical, typical squatting guy. Um, the thing is, the difference that make the, the the main difference between the Slav squat and the Western spy squat is the one that Slav squat is made by by forcing you all of your weight on your heels, heels to just ground always. Now the thing is, I, I thought it was kind of like silly and stupid, and I didn't know why the why do these people, as we call them, urlas here, because they're like uh, hoodlums. I, I know, I, I sort of the term is like some something like hoodlums or or chavs in UK, something like that. These are the people who are connected with this crime thing, and also some of them, they, they do all this squatting thing. But the thing is, 
They squat like that because it's also a prison and organized crime tradition. As you didn't have any place to sit in Russian gulags or crime or, or like prisons. You had only these... Basically, squatting was the only way how to rest your own legs. And as they didn't have dedicated toilets and as you really had to take a shit on the prison like prison square. That was the only way how to shit and not damage your own clothing. So this whole thing started as a way of just relaxing your feet and sitting down in the very, very, very dirty prison yards without without making yourself dirty. And of course, when you combine this prison edition with Adidas, this thing, then you get your typical sort of criminal, I'm sorry, criminal element of modern Russia today. Well, they say it all kind of loops back to that's why Russian mobsters are in track suits and do the Slav squad. <laughs> We are very practical over here. That's just a tra- it's just a tradition. <laughs> but yeah, Greg, any any of your mentions of, of what, what do you know? What, what's your first impression? Russian mafia. If you would have to date them from Russian mafia, someone, what what would be your first impression? You know, I, it it he kind of hits the nail on the head. If it's not tracksuits, the thing is, you always have like the Ita- like the Italian mob portrayals in America, and then like Russian mob. It's it's generally there's like the thick. The thick Eastern accent. He's always got a cigarette in hand. It's like the boss, right? And then all of the guys under him are an. Are you describing me right now? <laughs> and then the um, guys who are um, all of his like underlings and minions are all in usually all black with guns, right? And usually have some sort of like little compact SMG little thing going on or a little carbine of some sort there or a little AK. But it's um very. It's usually all black or tracksuits. Like that's generally what I think of. And um. Yeah, with the boss always in smoking and these thick, thick, thick accent. I mean, look at every Bond villain, right? Like, they're not Russian mob per, per se, but for decades, you'd always have the, the evil Russian Arab, like one of the two. Yeah, and I actually got asked it, once by a listener of ours. Uh, this was a serious question by, by Greg, another Greg, uh, who, who basically told us that uh, he asked me, have I learned English from the James Bond Villain Academy? <laughs> and it was like, what? No, I just speak like this. Come on. No, but, but seriously speaking, it's, it's a big, big thing. Because what, what you might not know about this big mafia boss is that the big mafia boss was often called uh, Vor Zakonia, or the Lawful Thief. That's the thing, because hmm. your ultimate thing which you can achieve while being in the mob, like the godfather in Italian mafia, is this Lawful Thief status. Which means that you have been in prison, you have gained your authority, and... Everything that you are so tough and cool that you're being ignored by the authorities. Lawful thief right. means that you're like, you have all the contacts and that you can do whatever you want. You'll be ignored by the authorities. You have just gained the status there. Because all of Russian mafia statuses are based essentially on who you are in prison. They are, because in, I don't know how this works in United States prisons or, or modern civilized prisons, but in Russian prisons today, in the Soviet prisons, there, there used to be this thing called parasha. Which was essentially, you don't, didn't have a bathroom to go to, you just had a bowl in your your cell. Four people live in a cell, it's a very tiny cell, there is this small bowl which just changed once per day. Mm-hmm. And the guy who sleeps close, and, and if you are on the lower shit tier end, of, literally shit tier end of things, then you are the dude who lives next to Parashu, you don't even get a bed. So this is the lowest category, and there was essentially crazy case system. One of the more interesting parts is that these guys, uh, 
This, this is a very bottom end, in, in as opposed to lawful thief. One of the more interesting things in uh, Soviet prisons and Russia, and also kind of our prisons to, to an extent, is that certain crimes are valued differently. One of the more interesting ideas is that rapists and pedophiles would be either castrated or very quickly killed in Soviet prisons. Essentially mm. sending you... Well, that's that's not just in Russia, though. I, I've seen that portrayed um, in um, <clears throat> Hell. If you've seen Bronson, um, he has a whole scene where he gets into like a um, psych place. Uh, he's been kicked out of every prison, and he finds a guy... Th- in, I don't know if y'all know about Charles Bronson, but basically like the, the greatest, most awful prisoner ever. And he found a guy who touched kids and that was like, Oh, Nope, that's against Mike. And he just killed the guy. And it's like very common to be like, Oh, if you, if you touch kids, it's like, you're scummier than scum. Like that's the one that murderers and rapists kill is like the ones who mess with kids. That's a very like, and then whether that's true or not, but that's very common cultural well, over, portrayal. Over here, it was very, very true because at least in, in some Soviet prisons, um, sexual violence um, against other inmates was very popular, but mm. it was, it wasn't like, I guess to a point it was like a fulfilling of sexual desires, but to another point it was like a form of humiliation. For example, yeah, if for you sure. were a, and asserting dominance, but, yeah, in a way. But for example, if you were a rapist and people found out in prison that you're a rapist, you would get raped quite a lot. That's a that's a thing because if you were a thief, a robber, or a murderer, then you were like one of these honorable people who could join the mafia. If you were a rapist or a child abuser, no man, you're fucked. You're just fucked. You're just, you're just done there. So it's like their own little code of ethics and weirdness to it. Yeah, but the thing is, uh, during the early years, during the Stalin years, the same rules applied for political prisoners. Because Stalin... And this is, this is where the first connections come into, because in, in uh, one of my books, which Kravitsky, Walter Kravitsky, uh, he was a Soviet defector who came to the USA in 1935 before the purges even began in earnest, and he was killed by the Soviet uh, spies in 1941. And he wrote about the fact that political prisoners, well, political prisoners which were put in gulags were often killed instantly by the regular prisoners, which are called like Zeks in, in the Soviet slang. And because if you were a, a thief or a murderer in the prison, you were in this organized crime, then you know, you're, they, the Soviets paid off the bosses, kind of the mafia leaders, to deal with these bad people, as they called them, the political prisoners, just, you know, kill them off so that our hands would be kind of cleaner. Something like that. So political prisoners got it, got it kind of tough. After the Stalins, it was, it was sort of a bit easier for them, but then again, in Soviet prisons, the life was extra tough, because for a long while, you guys know that Soviets developed a atom bomb uh, with while stealing information from you guys and doing things, but they mined uranium with the help of these prisoners. Essentially, um, Soviets got their uranium by using gulag prisoners with pickaxes to mine uranium. Because what life expectancy? You are no longer a human. Yeah. Yeah, that's the worst you job would? ever. Oh no no! You could that you could also be the secretary for Stalin, like write down his notes. That that's a bit worse. I could go on about these prisons, but the main structure of all of this was at the top of the whole structure of the Russian mafia. Said these lawful thieves who controlled the organization, who were there for a long while, and then they just trickled down their influence down until the very basic Zek. Zek was your common prisoner. Like you go to prison for stealing, I don't know, 
something or for smuggling something. The guys who are smugglers were, the, were especially important. Now, what interests me is that as we've gone down this structure and that it came from prison, and I'll, I'll talk later on about how this prison culture influenced everything, because there's this common slang word even now in Latvia and in Russia, which is called Hochma, which I've again mentioned in my previous episode, just a nice reminder there that we call jokes Hochmas in slang language. And the problem is that Hochma is a means wisdom in Yiddish. Like, it's a Jewish term, because... Again, it's very interesting, but in Odessa, which was the most Jewish, it was like the Jew, Jewish capital of the Soviet Union, uh, the most smuggling came through, which was run by the Jewish mafia, which which had ties to Russian mafia in a very kind of sister-like way. So all the terms that we use, Chochma and Patsan, and all, even the Slav squat and everything, this sort of prison mafia organized crime culture, it's like... It's an equivalent to gangster culture and United States rap music, I, I presume. I'm not an expert on United States rap music, obviously, but I think it's somewhat similar as it intervenes the layers of society. I, I, my presumptions here. I'm not trying to offend no, anyone. No, no, you actually. You know, I don't think it's offensive. Uh, and Rob, feel free to jump in at any point if you want. I'm just kind of diving in here. You actually raise a really interesting question about gangster because the word gangster has definitely evolved over time. There's like, there's like. Gangster in the, you know, I guess it, here's my chance to potentially be offensive, like gangster with an A and gangster with an R, right? And it's, it's, um, there's gangster like the old school fedora wearing, trench coat having, Tommy gun wielding, prohibition rum running, exactly. And then there's gangster like we have in the 90s, which is you basically switch from one minority to another. And when you think of old gangsters, you think of poor Italian immigrants who are trying to basically gain social and cultural power through violence and money. And then now you have it, it's primarily African-American youth. And so it's it's interesting because the, the common thread is marginalized minorities. So you can get into a whole discussion about the evolution of the word gangster. Um, but that's... Um, yeah, I mean, there's like, it's like, it really, if someone says the word gangster, they're immediately going to think Italian. Like, they're going to think old school Italian Al Capone. Would you agree with that, Rob? If someone uses, if like really says gangster full through. You know, we had a movie come out not too long ago over here called Gangster Squad, and it was, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, focusing on Al Capone and, and, and Hoover and, and, you know, all these exploits of them trying to catch him. And, uh, you know that's 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 the first image. You know the you know like the Al Capone type prototypical gangster. Now the thing is, over here, like our mafias. When when we say mafia, we're thinking Italian mafia. Yeah, one hundred percent. And we're talking about corrupting and controlling and siphoning a lot of money from businesses, uh, things of this nature, hijacking. Protection Move, money, prohibition, yeah, moving products, money. selling here, yeah. buying there, gambling, stealing. yeah, the whole nine yards, and lots what, of racketeering and numbers running. <laughs> yeah. So, but when it comes to Russian mafia, you know, what exactly are they doing over there? To are they are they That's after money? Question. Are they after power? Are they after weapons? I mean, what 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 are they doing over there, Christoph? Okay. okay, I. I would want to. I would want to ask you. I want to ask you about what they do in America because I don't know really about that part. But over here, the idea is that they are drug traffickers. It's all about drugs, also protection money sometimes. But protection money, it was huge in the 1990s because when the United, when the USSR collapsed, a lot of KGB got demoted. A lot of people just left the security business, and a lot of agents went 
just they didn't have work anymore, so they were hired by the Russian Russian organized crime. And so, so the same with the athletes and militiari and like militiaries, policemen essentially. So they had a lot of lot of brutal enforcers there. And there, but that kind of evaporated here because they were in a lot of racketeering. But the main thing is they do drug business, and they also do weapons business because weapons are highly illegal here. I mean, uh, we have way stricter gun control rules than you have. But there's, well, there's demand for them uh, as always. So drugs and weapons mostly. But in weird sense, they also run run casinos. Because those are strictly regulated as as a form of money laundering too. Prostitution, of course, is big, but mostly it's drugs, and then again, it's sometimes just blatant blatant robberies, blatant thefts, and just kind yeah. Of quite it's not open a whole lot. I don't associate the mafia, the Italian mafia, much with thievery. You don't get as much like it's. I'm sure they did it. But yeah, would you say I, I just don't usually associate it, kinda, it with like it breaking grew- into homes and stealing things? Do you? It's still there. It's still there from from the lower ranks of it because it all began in the modern sense, like what you have, what you have there right now in the late, in like in, in the early to late nineties. Because in the Soviet era, as you might know, getting a Levi's was a crime. It was a crime to smuggle Levi's in there and sell it in the black market. These guys were all the smugglers. The guys who organized all the deals. They controlled all the deals, they got their own prices, they fixed everything. These, these were these guys. So when the capitalism struck us suddenly, took us over by surprise, so to speak, then these guys were amongst the first businessmen who had all the nice contacts in the government because you couldn't be actually in any form organized crime if you didn't pay your nice dues to the government officials in the Soviet era. So these guys had all the contacts so they could build their own legitimate businesses. But at the same time, they still kept controlling all sorts of smaller crimes happening on the city. And this is the important part. They were basically running the crime scene. It's kind of different from racketeering and all the things. Racketeering was very uncommon in the Soviet era. It didn't happen at all. Because even gambling could happen only in very, like... Gambling happened only in tourist traps. It was for tourists only, basically, in Soviet Union. What these guys did was they really controlled all the thefts. Because thieving was a very important source of income in the Soviet Union. Think about it. Uh, one of the most sought-after jobs there was the guy who guy who carries boxes of booze from one place to another. Because on each trip on your, in your car, two bottles are allowed to break. You have to have these broken bottles to swap them for full bottles and you drive very carefully not to break anything. You know, because that's the way how you get booze in Prohibition era. You had our own prohibition here. So thieving from the government was a major source of income, and they these guys controlled all of this. And also, in a way, they controlled political dissent, because KGB worked with them. Because, you know, KGB turned their eyes on the fact that someone is, yeah, organizingly stealing shit from the government to build their own wealth illegally, and, you know, giving, giving Levi's to people through smuggling and all these economical crimes... Um, but they used them as informants towards like actual dissent, like people who were translating 1984 Animal Farm were caught with the help of organized crime in, in Soviet Union. They, they basically organized crime gave up political dissenters to the authorities so that they could run their economical crimes. And there were quite a few KGB people involved in this. For example, 
uh, it was common for like that drug crimes were very very uncommon in the Soviet Union. Smuggling was the most most important crime, and as drug crimes were very very uncommon, it was common like only doctors basically who had access to morphine were involved in them. And it was common for KGB agents to just go up to a doctor and ask them, "Hey, uh, can you just sell me some morphine under the counter?" And that happened to my grandmother, my late grandmother, really. And uh, she said it was one of the most difficult situations situations in her life, as really you you can't know if this guy really is a KGB agent who wants the morphine, and if you don't give it to him, it will get you into trouble, or is it just a test to run you through the system? And you have to make this choice every time, and you really have no choice at the moment. It's a catch-22 and the worst kind. And they just ran through all of these deals. Of course, sometimes, like in the famous Moscow Olympics in 1980, all of Russian organized crime were put from prisons 101 kilometers away from Moscow and for, like forbidden to enter there uh, for the duration of the Olympics so that there would be no crime there. And they were threatened with massive punishments if they would enter and there would be any trouble there. So that's how, like, with cooperation, with organized crime, KGB managed to make sure the Moscow Olympics in 1980 were safe. Otherwise, the long, the age-old tradition of, oh, look, an American, he must have shit tons of money, let us rob him dry, is very nice and famous and running here in these parts. So yeah, basically it's smuggling drugs, drugs these days, not in the Soviet Union, and just really, you might find it scary, but yeah, they're still running all these robberies and thefts and murders of, of, of various kinds. They just keep it under under control, so to speak. They keep it under check. So that it doesn't happen too often, so that it doesn't draw attention, stuff like that. What do they do in America? I mean, they, 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 they have this uh, reputation for extreme violence. Uh, the Their punishments are something which I heard even was like about five or six. It was like, common knowledge in the yard... You, this guy's dad is in the mafia, you do not cross him, or he will basically break your ribs and make you bleed out or something. The brutality thing <laughs> was the most emphasized part of this. Well, th- there's kind of there's kind of two elements to this, and it's kind of ra- raised another question about the mafia, right? So, the one, yeah, it tends to be family. And, like, with the, the Italian mob, there's this idea, at least in popular portrayal, um, that... Um, there's there's kind of an honor among thieves, but it's always about family. So Don Corleone, right? Like if you kill someone's family member, they're gonna come in off you. They make an attempt on the Godfather. He survives it. So what does he do? He goes to a restaurant and kills a bunch of that guy's family. It's this whole idea. It's it's the old Italian vendetta model of like the Renaissance areas, right? See, it's this tit for tat constantly. You see it in Romeo and Juliet. You see it in like all kinds of portrayals of Italian culture, and it very much translates into mob culture. And I have no idea how accurate that is. But at least in movies, it's constant. It's like, you know, oh, they, it's like, oh, we, we caught so-and-so's son. And it's like, oh, now we have leverage. Like, we got that guy's son. Not only is it his blood family member, but he also runs half the operations, right? There's this, the business and family are intimately connected. And um, I guess, and then it's usually the classic, like, they roll up in cars and they do a drive-by with Tommy guns and take out, you know, two guys and a police chief and drive off, right? It's very, very violent. It's very vicious. And um, it tends to get out of con- spiraling out of control. Um, and I guess it kind of makes me want to ask, like, is there like a family component to the Russian mob? Like, or is it just like, oh, I met you in prison or, oh, we've done jobs together. Like, because the Italian mafia, you can't like immediately comes to mind. It's a godfather, right? Why is he called the godfather? It's family. In Russian, mafia is different. 
Yeah. It's actually prison culture. It's all about prison culture. It's about the prison um, culture. Okay. Sitting, sitting in the same cell with someone else in prison is way more important than him being your brother. Right. Okay. That's why it's the like a blood bond you build, right? It's like someone in the trenches in the military kind of. That, that's why the the like I said, the chief of the Russian mafia is called Vor Zakonya, the lawful thief. Mm. That's the guy with the contacts who built up his prison prison cred, basically. Mm. Mm. But I don't know. I want to ask Rob because yeah. About about all of this, because his podcast is about is all about Kennedy assassination, and oh boy, we didn't know much <laughs> about we didn't know about Kennedy assassination here in the Soviet Union, but um, I, I bet you have some theories which involve um, some of the nice people from KGB over there, which may or may not be connected to other nice people, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of Lee Harvey Oswald over there in Russia. I mean, he did go over there for a couple of years and uh, meet and marry one of your beautiful Russian women and bring her back to the United States. Um, you know, over here we kind of think that uh, possibly one of the theories, and, and, and Greg, you're from New Orleans, right? Yeah, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> you, you, you've, heard of, you've heard of Carlos Marcelo, I'm sure. And the theories surrounding his involvement in the Kennedy assassination. Um, and, of course, he was a big uh, mafia crime family member back then in the early 60s. He, they, were, they, had, they were divided up into regions back then. Like, Marcelo controlled, like, the New Orleans, Texas, like, the lower south and southwest portion of the United States. Then there were Santos Traficante down in Florida and up the eastern coast. Then, of course, you had your New England or your um, New York crime families, your Chicago, G Sam Giancana, you know, your West Coast guys, and they all had their different little territories. And nobody stepped on anybody's feet or, you know, and they kind of have their own rules within within the mafia over here. You know, you, you don't just kill somebody. If you do, there's consequences. You know, you have to be you have to get it okayed first. You, you know, nobody just is going to kill Kennedy associated with the mafia without him being given the okay to do so and if he doesn't get that okay to do so there's going to be consequences and they deal with things internally you know they don't take it out you know the coast of nostra means our thing it's nobody else's stuff it's it they take care of their own business they have their own rules and that's pretty much it um you know, and these guys would get together, and I think it was in Pennsylvania. You know, they would they would all meet together like once a year and have a little family get together, and they'd talk about the business because you know these guys worked together back then. The United States is a huge place. Russia is a huge place. Um, I'm sure there's not just one mafia leader controlling you know all the criminal elements oh, in, yeah. in Russia. Uh, of of course, definitely. And Russia is mostly by by sphere like. They're, they're basically in the big cities. They they uh, have their influence kind of checked. Like in, in Moscow, there's this guy responsible for drugs. This guy responsible for smuggling stuff like that. It's kind of but but the kind of it's by city and also by what you do actually. And the and and then there are the serial killers because uh, these guys are disliked by the organized crime so much over here because they're like what the pol if you're a serial killer then the police will hunt you down. And the, then that means police will be tough on crime. So, actually, when one of the more famous famous serial killers of the 90s came abroad, like Chikatilo, and he was like a real freak of nature, he used to cut off nipples and uh, nip, nipples and testicles of his victims and, and cook them and eat them. And he killed like 25 people. Uh, yeah, then then uh, basically, even though the, the Russian police at the time really put a 
they really searched him, Russia and Mafia put a bounty on his head because they were like, no man, they're raiding all of our storehouses, they're, they're looking for some connection to us, but we're not monsters, we're orthodox believers and good people, we just do our business. So I don't know, is that something like, another thing which, which I want to ask, it, stucking into Rob's thing, but uh, if you could, if you could maybe mention something like that, how, how was the American organized crime's attitude to, you know, God or morality, do they also have this wicked, weird sense of morality going on? Well, they they pretty much have a code, and that's what they live by. I don't think it, God comes too much into it, uh, you know, <laughs> over here. You know, a lot you of times you'll see yeah. their moms, like, very religious and stuff. Like, Don, the closing scene of The Godfather, it's all the murders are happening while he's at his kid's baptism, right? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, they might put on a... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good public face, but behind, right, yeah, right. behind closed doors. As Italians more than anything else. Right, yeah. Um, I don't think religion plays too much into what they do. Um, yeah, you know, because they're, let's face it. I mean, over here anymore in 2016, there's not a huge mafia in quotes presence anymore. Um, that's pretty much all been taken care of, at least from what we know and what we see over here. Right, Greg. I mean, you don't see people getting murdered in New York in the steakhouses anymore. You don't see oh. John Corley. Well, you're lucky or, um, then. What's his it's name? Kinda, John, it's kind of been Gotti. Yeah. yeah, John. It really went down in New Orleans. It was really going um, in the '90s. It kind of died down here. Um, there was a, but yeah, it's definitely um, it's definitely not as something you see that the, the the idea of the mafia is very is especially for my generation almost considered antiquated now. It's just not. It's just not a thing. Well, you must be very lucky. Lines. You must be very lucky people then. Well, now, now they, they just wear suits and, and, and have a business name and, <laughs> you know. I guess so. I guess it's over on Wall Street. Yeah. I mean, our CIA was tied <laughs> was tied to all kinds of this stuff. You know, they would bring in drugs in the United States, you know, taking it over to the to these gangs in, in, in L.A. and distributing it there, you know, like with Rick Ross and all these guys. And they're responsible for these crack epidemics and, you know. It's it's you know and when the mafia was doing their thing like back in the you know the the seventies and eighties and you know like what you see portrayed on the Sopranos I don't know if y'all seen that over there in in Latvia or anything but that was a really good show if anybody has a chance to check it out that will take you inside the Italian mafia pretty pretty close to you know what we think it ran like when it when it was in full swing over here but like I say pretty much anymore you know when you know with the FBI doing wiretaps or surveillance on these guys. I mean, a lot of these big guys, you just don't hear about them anymore unless they've gone way, way underground. Well, over here in Latvia, they are gone way underground, but um, basically what I, what got me into trouble in the episode 18 of my show about Putin is that I firmly believe that Putin is involved in the 
Russian organized crime. Because, you know what, lately KGB and organized crime ties uh, have become very, very, very close. Because um, you need somewhere to launder your money from if you're being extremely corrupt. Like, one of the latest things that Putin did was, imagine this, he sold humongous amount of gas to China, like, over the next 20 years. He, they, they set a deal. But the thing is, the gas price over, they have to transfer gas to China for 20 years, but the gas price per uh, cubic meter, okay, let's just say per gallon, it works per gallon too, it doesn't matter. Basically, the gas price per gallon is set to these days' prices. So they basically signed a deal which sells Russia's gas extremely, extremely cheaply so that they could pocket about 40% of the money themselves. And they have to launder it somehow. And all the drug de drug trade goes goes the same way as well. But I don't know, I was mostly wondering about, about like Russian Russian portrayal of, of these things because uh, as far as I know and some other of my Western friends have, have said that the Russian Russian branch of all of this is kind of famous for their brutality and, and all the methods and... Um, and all the strange tattoos, because, yeah, I don't know, um, do the Italian mafia in America had any special form of tattoos or, or messages on their body that they had to represent of st their status? Their status? Yeah, I don't think as much about ink. No, it was more about jewelry, nice clothes, nice mm. cars, nice women, you know, just living large and in charge. Conspicuous you know? consumption. Yeah. Well, over here it was different, because... As, as this is basically prison centered, like I said, a bunch of our culture comes from prison culture. You had you you could only put certain tattoos in your body if you reach certain status in the organized crime, and it still works for today. For example, if you see someone with a church cupolas, like these Orthodox round church cupolas tattooed on their bodies, that means a person they killed that they serve a murder sentence with. Essentially, if you see someone for a prison, th 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 those are. Either the people you have killed or your prison sentences, but they all have a meaning. Yeah, see, that works more for gangs over here, like loose, non-mafia affiliated, just gangs, you know, like the Crips or the Bloods, they'll have their own tattoos, and, you know, these white supremacist gangs in the prisons, they'll have their own thing going on, and... The classic, like, teardrops for every friend you've lost who's been killed, like, stuff like that, very... I don't know, again, this falls in territory, I'm not intimately, you know... Like how much it actually means, or how much of it's just in movies, but that's kind of what's associated with prison and tattoos. But mafia is not with prison, so it's not that ink and mafia. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the as I guess that's the main difference because Russian mafia in this case grows out of such a prison gang. It's a prison gang who's gotten power, and uh, and this is where Stalin comes in, by the way, because uh, he used to be a gangster in the gang style of way, before he became the supreme dictator and the father of nation of the great Soviet Union, he used to rob banks. He was a Georgian bank robber. Also, he was in the seminary to become a pastor, an orthodox one. But yeah, he used to rob banks with his pals. And he got a lot of his uh, friends in crime into the Communist Party. I mean, uh, Betty was one of them, mind you and other, other big leaders, so he knew how to use these criminal elements to do his deeds. And a lot of uh, Cheka people, a lot of uh, these NKVD, KGB people, who later, even, maybe, have had some involvement in Kennedy assassination and worked as operatives outside the border, or were in high positions, they, they were ex-convicts, because uh, Stalin trusted convicts more than he trusted regular guys from the streets with training. 
because Stalin personally thought that, you know, if you are a convict and I let you free, then you owe me. Then I have control over you. And this is why, for example, Karolyov, the guy who I spoke with you guys in the Space Race episode, he he basically spent his time in gulags for a while. And he was a prisoner while he did his experiments with, with rocketry. Because he was put into prison, then he was let out, and the thing was like, okay, okay, I can put you in prison, I can let you out, you do what I tell you. So, uh, and that later KGB and GRU both, they, they learned from him. So, and, and a lot of these guys, later when they were rehabilitated, kind of became became more more suited for agent work, so to speak. Now, the interesting part in the Soviet Union was that the, the organized crime extended to prisons and big cities only. There weren't really anything going on in the vast regions of Siberia. Because, you know, there were only tribals living there, and, you know, there, there's a gulag in the middle of nowhere and the army people. But, but the strange ties between between uh, between Russia and organized crime and KGB, they, they always fascinated me, and this is, this is the thing I wanted to find out about, because, uh, I don't know, Rob, you might have more information on this. Uh, what can you tell me about the the people of the Communist Party of the United States of America and the, the Russian spies sent there? You must have some yeah, information I mean, they were on that. trying to tie Oswald to uh, some of these communist parties. Like they, He had uh, a famous picture of him holding his rifle with some communist newspapers, The Worker, and uh, I forget what the other one was called. But these were communist propaganda newspapers, and uh, he, he actually claimed himself to be a Marxist and not a communist, which I'm not sure the difference, to be honest with you. Um, you might know the uh, difference between a Marxist and communist. Uh, Soviet Union saw none different. N- no difference, by the way. It's kind of really you maybe go socialist versus communist kind of. It all kind of bleeds. See, the, the the thing is, the Soviet Union thought that socialism is just the, the incomplete, imperfect way to go to communism. It's, it's weird. You go everything to government, and then you dissolve government. the government. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they t- they tried to time to all kinds of things down here. Um, you know, he, they even accused him of going to Mexico City and and going to the Russian embassy there. Mm-hmm and trying to get a visa to Cuba and then ultimately back to Russia. He was trying to send his wife home back to Russia uh, earlier in 1963 by herself, uh, but he wasn't getting any cooperation from the Russian embassy here. So I don't know if that's what he was going to go talk to them about. Um, People say, of course, he was trying to get to Cuba to assassinate Castro. It's hard to tell, and, and some people don't even think that Oswald ever went to Mexico, that it was he was being impersonated, you know, set up. You know, to as to be the assassin of, of JFK and turn it into a communist plot, and a, a lot of people over here think that the Warren Commission was created specifically to nullify and dull that idea, because it would have led to World War III. Of course, if if God forbid the communists killed our president, because guess what? We're we're, gonna, we're you know it's time to retaliate, and it wouldn't have just been to Cuba. It likely would have led to nuclear war with Russia. Oh boy, and I have seen the patterns on where the nuclear bombs fall in Latvia, and I'm quite surprised for the size for the country size of West Virginia with two million population. You dropped at least fifty nukes here, and I'm like, what? But why? We would like raise up in your like defense and help you guys out if you would come and conquer <laughs> Soviet Union. But no, you nuke us. You nuke us instead. All Americans. <laughs> just, just kidding, man. Just kidding. Yeah, you used to do a show so on that guess, guy. There I... was a guy in Russia, I forget his name, but it'd be a cool <laughs> show to do, Kristaps, about the guy who uh, 
single-handedly stopped World War Three when he got a uh, the, a, sub- the sub-commander guy? guy. I don't know if it was him or not. They got no, a, no, no, a no, no, false. No. Uh, thing where they had oh, five yeah, five yeah, missiles yeah, yeah. coming in and he chose not to retaliate it was a false alarm i know this guy by the way um this is one bit unrelated but hey what do you expect from the eastern border we we go to these unrelated topics anyways um see the thing is this guy actually managed to um manage to be completely wasted while uh while on his job and another story goes like this, that he used these guys in this base, which was in the middle of nowhere in Siberia. They used their schemes, you know, like modern-day motherboard equivalents, like, you know, the, the schematics, which are like these electronical plates stuffed in the walls of these technical technologies. Half of them were just redundant and didn't do their job, so they used them to open beer bottles while working on these missiles. So, yeah, um... World War Three, that would happen. We would all be dead. I wouldn't be talking here. Mostly speaking, I don't know. The thing that scares me out the most is that these guys are still out there. At least here in, in Eastern Europe. When, when we're talking about, about mafia and organized crime, you might be lucky not to experience all this, but you can feel them in the air, essentially. They are, they're around, and there are some people being arrested. Of course, it, it's way less than it was in the 90s. But they're still around, they're still working here, and uh, let me tell you, it's a bit scary. It's a bit scary when it comes to this. I imagine the mafia's not dead in America, but it's definitely not, like, it's not something I ever think about. Well, over here in Latvia, it's a bit under control, because we're in the European Union now, so that actually helped a lot. But in Russia, it's, you know, live and kicking. (laughs) I do have a quick question, because a a very popular portrayal of... of, um, the Italian mob, especially in America, is dock workers. So, like, not well, not dock workers, but controlling the docks. So they'd go in like anywhere where they're shipping, right? So a lot of big, a big way of hiding your crime is to have a legitimate business front that you can launder your money through. That, or you're legitimately making money by just controlling the supply and labor. So if you've seen like on the waterfront or seen a bunch of movies, it would be like the mob comes in, decides how many people get to work, who gets to work, and how much they get paid, and then they take their cut. And so usually by force, they would basically control the workforce. Um, so there's definitely association of the mob being associated with Italian restaurants for laundering, meeting at Italian restaurants for the whole thing. That all comes back to family and culture. But then docks. I always think of dock workers, any sort of shipping. So um, is there any sort of like legitimate businesses that may have been used as fronts, but like that the Russian mob is associated with? Well, one thing that mob is associated with right now over here is uh, security workers. Mm. All these security firms and everything. Because when you think about All it... All this Blackwater type stuff. Need, yeah. Not mer- not mercenaries, but essentially, you know, private security organizations like the guys who guard your store. You 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 contract these guys to guard your store, stuff like that. Uh, they were, they're really heavily regulated right now, but over here to become... A security dude, you don't have to have any kind of license or anything, and you have a gun license too. And no, it's a bit shady how they operate here. Yeah, that's that's the number one business where where they're involved. But that is why our government tries to heavily regulate them. Not so in Russia. In Russia, these things are basically you know free for all. And you know what? If you believe what Putin said about his nice involvement in Crimea, that those were all private people buying tanks and rockets and everything and uniforms there freely, then you know you have to think where it came from. If that's true, it's even more scary than if if it isn't. And I believe it is, and I hope it isn't. Honestly, but but in the Soviet era, in the Soviet era, docks, yeah. 
Because you know what? Where did the Levi's and the rubber gum, like the chewing gum, that rubber gum? One. I, I English goodly. Sorry, it's late here. It's almost two a.m. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, where do you think all the all the chewing gum come from? It's like well, everything was done through the docks and and everything. But also, in a way, one of the interesting things was they were the tour guides because. Tourists would come, and KGB agents would infiltrate, uh, kind of, they would act as the guides, or if a group from the Soviet Union would go abroad to some other country, they had some KGB agents with them. And sometimes, you know, if you were a criminal and knew the local city better, better than the KGB guys, you would be kind of assigned to the group instead as a form of your, like, taking part of your punishment away. Like, you know, you, you stick around with these, these guys who come to this city, we will uh, lessen your prison sentence, not beat you up daily, too. Then again, you, but you have to understand that in killing in prisons was an industrialized thing in the Soviet era. Like, like it was... Uh, there, there are some documentaries about it, but uh, if you'd ever visit Latvia, I'd show you that we have this KGB building here. Like, it's like it takes up a whole block, almost. It's a huge building with with a central central square there, and it was like you get you get taken into a dark dark room. You get asked a few questions, and while you're asked these questions, you get a bu- you get a bullet in your in your back of your head, and then you get tossed in, in uh, and then you get tossed in a chute, which drags you kind of uh, outside, like a bit lower, and then you get stuffed into a to a van and taken somewhere after after some ten or fifteen bodies pile up, and that's every day for years, you know, so. I understand why these people kind of obeyed obeyed these structures, but in a way, I don't know. You speak about these family things, but the Russians, the Russians operated on honor. Really, it was honor based because there was this thing. There, there are a lot of wordplays in Russian, but one of the most important things about prison is that you had to keep your honor. If you said that you would get a pack of cigarettes for someone in prison, and if you didn't, and if they were, then all of all of the prison would beat you up. And you would never get into this. And yeah, and that was... I don't know why, but that's, that was extremely important there. And if you couldn't keep your word, then you had zero chances of, of doing this. And at the same time, it's interesting phenomenon as... I don't know why people would join mafia in the United States, because you had like so much legitimate opportunities. But over here in the Soviet Union, it was like... You know, if you wanted to be something bigger, that was a chance of actually a better life. Like... As an Italian immigrant, your opportunities were generally manual labor or boxing. Like, it just was like, and that's a gross generalization, but like, a lot of it has to do with the fact that there really wasn't great opportunities because there was a lot of, I mean, we think about racism against um, Hispanics and African Americans right now, but every, most groups that have come through America have experienced it at some point. Like, the Polish and the Irish and the Italians got it pretty bad. Um, I'd say mid 19th century to the turn of the 20th. Um, and by the, you know, by the time World War II rolled around, they'd kind of paid their due. And, um, but you'd have like, generally, that's why all you have these, if you look at boxing, it's actually a really interesting metric for who got rights and who didn't, because there's like an era of great Jewish boxers. There's an era of great Irish boxers. It's it's actually, it's kind of crazy to watch actually. But, um, yeah, a lot of it was that you say there's a lot of opportunity for Americans, but the question was, were you American? And and that question was, we think it's kind of a new one. We're like, oh, look at all these immigrants coming to take jobs. But that's as, that's as old as the country. And um, 
and goes on around the world. So uh, Italians, the, the mob did in a lot of ways come out of these ghettos for Italians, Little Italy's in New York. Um, and just it was generally poor immigrants. It wasn't your rich immigrants had no reason to do that. It was poor immigrants. That was really your your who made the bulk of it. And if you were young, your parents made no money. Maybe you only had one parent. Maybe you had no parents, and you were you were at orphanage. Let's not even get into early twentieth century orphanages in America. But you know your opportunity is like some Don shows up in a suit and goes, "Hey, carry this package to this guy. I'll give you you know a hundred dollars." And you're like, "What? Like what? How? Like it just and suddenly you're beholden to them." It's this, it's this very, it, they bring you in as a young age. They start very young. Very young. It's not like you're 25 and going to apply at the McDonald's, you know, to get into the mafia. You're brought in very young, generally your family members. And like Greg was saying, you know, it's a, it's a, a very tight-based, you know, like say it's the Italian community. You know, the, the, the people that are going to stick together to try to succeed because they're the outcast. You know, they're, they're well, not outcast, but... They live in the same community. You know, basically, you know, you have the Italians living over here. You got the Mexicans all living together over here. And in every big city in America, yeah, you had your own little sub-businesses going and sub-little mafias. And I'm sure it still goes on in every town. I mean, big city anyway. And, of course, the Dons, the big big wigs, you know, if they were, if they were, you know, as they, as they grew and grew, they would take it on another city and another city and another city and keep making more money and more money and more money. And of course, you know, just trickled the trickle down theory down to the very lowly uh, street guys. Mm-hmm. Now, Christophs, I had a question for you. Oh, yeah, about, sure. About the Russian mafia. Now, over here, we got the stereotypical way that, that the mafia kills somebody. Um, I was just wondering if over there in Russia, there is a specific killing style. Or something that they do over there to make it known, say, hey, that mafia got that guy. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> like over point. here, you know, they, they will shoot you or they, you will never find the body or they will shoot you 10 times in the mouth because you're a snitch. Uh, they'll, you know, at three o'clock in the middle of the, you know, in the middle <laughs> of the street and leave your body there with 80 bullets in it. Like, <laughs> yeah, or the, you know, the Colombian necktie or something like that. Do they got, you know, mm-hmm. anything like that? See, been- this is This is where KGB again comes in. Uh, like I said, uh, to Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess uh, when they were doing their Astonishing Legends or the Somerton Man uh, about the missing man in Australia, the one of the theories there that was that you know uh, it's the KGB or the mafia who did this. And my response was this: What 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 bullshit is this? If the KGB would kill someone, you would never see them ever again. They would have gone to a vacation somewhere. Yeah, they abandoned their family. They didn't get killed. They just they just left for another country and left their family to fend for themselves. The terrible they person. Tr- <laughs> they, they, left, they left to another country. They are capitalist traitors. If, if we killed them, they deserved it. Why do you even want to know? Why are you so interested in this? See, this um, this killing for show, it's it's not, not common here. Not really. Uh, it was done very subtly. Right? In modern day, I suppose, car explosions are a big thing. In a way, in a way, if it happens, because that's an easy way to hell kill someone. But really, the main difference. Another other thing is that, as as I told you, as far as I have learned from comparisons with you guys, is that Russian mafia came from prison gangs and they and, and they worked with KGB. So they are all about efficiency. They don't care about posh things. They will kill you if you do something bad, and they just re- refer to subtle, subtle ways. I mean. 
uh, Russian mafia cooperated with KGB. They didn't need to show up their power because everyone was already scared of them anyways. Uh, what they did was they just disappeared. That was it. Done. Car explosions in the 90s? Yeah, for some flashy purposes, but mostly you just disappeared. There was no need to make anything flashy. You just got shot. Your body was never found. So it was it was a bit bit of this uh, slow kind of weird intimidation factor, a bit more subtle. Uh, another other reason for this was that gun crime in the Soviet Union was extremely rare. That's why car explosions were also explosions and knife killings were were much more and poisonings were much more common because see uh, in the Soviet era the only thing the television showed was positive news. Like, only, look, look, we, we build more cars than capitalist pigs, we are so much better. Stuff like that, you know. How how good we are, how great we are, like, in Chern- after the Chernobyl incident, only Disney movies were showed in, showed in Ukrainian television, I've mentioned that a couple of times, you know, only positive stuff, except when the gun crime happened. His guns were severely limited, they were all registered uh, to hunters, and very, very few in number, unless those hidden in someone's basement from the war. Uh, which were sometimes like even mortars, but still, if a gun crime happened, it was a, such a huge deal that these were reported everywhere. So, if if Russian organized crime at the Soviet era would kill someone with guns in open day, that would not just uh, get a response from the local police or even from KGB station in the countryside. No, that would mean that mostly the whole village would get arrested by army, with army units put into gulags and, uh, you know, major trouble with major cleansing, major political cleansing as well. Now, another thing where uh, Russian organized crime played a huge role was that it wasn't that Soviet citizens were always happy. There were actually mass riots in uh, 23 and 25, and also in 53 and uh, 50. 55, I suppose, and during during the early 50s, which you didn't know about at all in the in the America, I think, because these were people in factories and in colchos just rioting because they didn't have any food, because uh, Stalin and the Soviet leaders just exported all the grain, and there was planned economy. They just took the grain from the people and exported that to guess what? United States of America and Canada. Surprise, surprise! The filthy grain hoarding kulaks. <laughs> yeah, that would be you guys. Greg is smiling right now. <laughs> and Rob's. <laughs> no, but uh, the idea was that uh, there were a lot of a lot of these riots and things. And what would you do? You couldn't send in the cops there. You couldn't really oppress them. You could just send some army units, but the information would just trickle down. So they used organized crime to just deal with these uneasy situations, so to speak. Like, government needs you eliminated, but they can't do it themselves, or information will trickle down, someone will find out. You know, if we if, if the people see that a crime is being committed, then it's like, you know, nah, it's just a crime. If the government comes and oppresses someone, and, you know, we're talking about the 50s after Stalin's death or late 60s, you can't do that anymore, because Khrushchev already has condemned Stalin's atrocities. So that is how KGB basically either dressed up as, as uh, Soviet uh, criminals or just, more often than not, just paid the big Russian mafia bosses to just deal with them. Uh, Political, political dis- dissidents and, and all these uh, uncomfortable people to the government. And now we come back to Rob. Say, did the United States government ever employ organized crime to deal with deal with its political opponents? 
Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I can point to several examples when it has to do with the Kennedy assassination, uh, just specifically. Um, they were in touch with a guy by the name of Johnny Rosselli, and they actually would subcon the CIA would subcontract out actually the hit on Castro. And a lot of these guys, including uh, Johnny Rosselli, uh, Robert Mayhew, a lot, of, a lot of these guys, Sam Giancana, um, Santo Traficante, uh, you know, he didn't like Castro very much either because Ca uh, Castro threw him in jail after he took over for a little while. And Traficante lost all of his uh, casino holdings in Cuba to Castro. And so... A lot of these things were recently de declassified in the 90s when it has to do with the CIA and their uh, assassination plots against Castro revealed that they did, in fact, contract out this stuff to our American mafia. It's called uh, plausible deniability. You know, if, if they got caught, mm -hmm. well, hey, it's just our mafia. They're, you know, they're pissed off that they're losing all this money. This is their retaliation. That way the CIA doesn't get blamed for it. Unless, of course, you know, they talk. Oh, yeah. And then, very similar. Can you believe yeah. them or not? Yeah. So they most definitely, and, and like I said before, you know, the, the government here, you know, it can be proven all the way back to the 70s and 80s that they've been bringing drugs in, you know, flying drugs in from God knows where, uh, you know, cocaine, heroin, the rest of it. And I'm sure it gets disseminated out through, you know, these crime families. Um. And, you know, because they put the stuff on the streets, they can make money off of people, you know, the war on drugs and, you know, population control will work itself out and the poor stay poor, the rich get richer and all that happy uh, stuff. <laughs> well, well, yeah, over here, like I said, the, the, the worst moments were just after the the capitalism collapse, the socialism collapsed, I'm sorry, when the capitalism came into power because... Uh, might be shocking to you, but uh, organized crime and all these things seem pretty neat when you're living on $30 per month. Or an equivalent to, which, which happened here, with the prices still being uh, almost the way they are now. But yeah, I guess it's always it's always the case of, um, of oppressed people and poor people given some sort of semi-legal options of, of um, search, looking looking for money and everything. But yeah, this is this is a nice way to to wrap this all up. We've been talking for for a bit over an hour now. So uh, thank you for being here. If you have any last comments, last questions, something, uh, feel free to ask them before we wrap this whole thing up. Who would win in a fight, a Italian mobster or a Russian mobster? What fight? There would be no fight. Italian mobster gets lost in the in the middle of the street while he goes to the fight. No one sees them ever. <laughs> no, if he gets to the fight, then he brings guns and then he might have a chance, you know. But we can't let that happen. Nice. <laughs> well, Rob, any 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 questions or comments from you? No, I think we covered a lot. You know, when you, when you actually look at it and uh, compare them between uh, with the American style, Italian style mafia and the, and the Russian mafia, there's a, there, there is a lot of similarities. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, more similarities than differences. You know, it, it's all about opportunity and making money and power, and it translates either way on both sides of the world. Yeah, I guess so. And um, 
You know what, listeners, don't do anything illegal. Just try to stay out of organized crime organizations, unless it's like Dark Myths. Dark Myths is the only one. And we're not crime, though. Sorry. That's our Cosa Nostra. <laughs> it's our thing. It's, it's amazing, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and see you next time. And thank you for being here. And don't forget to check out Rob's The Lone Gunman podcast and Greg's uh, Rumor Flies. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.